Hey everybody, Jeremy here. Before we get into the episode today, I want to make you aware of a couple things. We now have a store for our podcast. If you go to dotheology.com, you can click store up at the top and support the podcast by buying some merch. I know that you have some stimulus money burning a hole in your pocket. This is a great way to relieve yourself of that issue. Go to dotheology.com and click on store. Also, if you're on Facebook and you like listening to podcasts, we have something kind of fun going on right now on our Facebook page. That is a tournament, a March Madness-style tournament for other podcasts, seeing who is the best of the best of the 32 podcasts that we selected to participate in this tournament. So go to facebook.com slash theology. Check out all the tournament stuff happening over there. Vote, participate, help your favorite podcast out of those 32. Advance on to the final round. And no, we did not include your favorite podcast, Do Theology. But a lot of runners-up are participating in that tournament. So head on over to Facebook and check it out. Now we'll go ahead and jump into the intro for this episode. Welcome to Do Theology, where we keep doctrine in its place. I'm Jeremy in Utah. And I am Ken in Indiana. Today we are going to be talking about the human conscience. What a very complex issue. Scripture has a lot to say about the conscience and a person's heart. And we want to give you a full overview of uh, how we can understand the human conscience from the standpoint of an unbeliever and a believer and how the conscience can be kept in good standing, how the conscience can be kept clear, and how to be a good steward of your conscience as a mm. believer. So here we go. This I don't know how long this conversation is going to last. I don't know all the turns we're going to take. We, we're recording this before the actual episode. So I hope you're ready for a roller coaster ride with us, but let's keep it biblical and let's grow together on this issue. Neither Bethel nor Hillsong meet the biblical definition of a true church. Did you know that Jesus was born again? Is his view heretical? If it isn't, then there's no such thing as heresy. It's not just a black and white issue. There's an issue, there's a question of moderation and how damaging and how harmful things are. Not every act of divine revelation is equal in authority. Angelic forces, angelic reinforcement. I mean, it's, it's hard to even respond to that, isn't it? It's mind-numbing, it's blasphemous. When the apostles use the word atonement, they do not depict an angry God. It's cryptic, it's watered down, it has nothing to do with the judicial aspect of the Christian gospel. The most important of all doctrines is that the Bible is the word of God. They have different ideas than you do. You don't have to automatically kick them out of the kingdom. Hey, welcome. <laughs> I hope you enjoy that intro. Just in case you've forgotten, our friend Dustin Garrett is the one who plays guitar on that intro. Very talented. Works for Samaritan Ministries. You should also check out Samaritan Ministries for all of your Christian healthcare needs. Uh, but we uh, not an official sponsor. Not an official sponsor yet. Not yet. <laughs> no official sponsors yet. But uh, which reminds me, I sh- I should do that one thing I've been wanting to do. Yeah, later in the episode. Later okay. in the episode. So okay. keep listening, people. Are you intrigued? But uh, <laughs> yeah, Dustin did the music for that. He played guitar and drums and all that for the intro. Good stuff. Um, and maybe we should do an episode where we break down each one of the clips that's in the episode. It'd be kind of fun. That would be fun. Because uh, I don't know the full context for all of them. 
but anyway, uh, yeah, let's do quick updates real quick before we jump into this really meaty subject. Uh, I'll go first. Recently, I was in a debate, so you can check that out on YouTube, on the Gospel Truth YouTube channel. I debated Will Duffy. He's an open theist. We debated the topic, does the Bible teach that God exists outside of time? Open theists believe that God lives a creaturely existence like we do inside of time and that the future doesn't exist. So that was an interesting debate, and you can look at that on YouTube. But uh, other than that, I've got pretty typical stuff going on, nothing too two different uh, families going well, church life's going well here in ministry in Utah. We could always use more people in Utah if you're interested in selling your possessions and giving up your life wherever you are and coming out here and serving alongside us for the cause of Christ. Uh, you know, but whatever, if you want to keep living that convenient, comfortable <laughs> life you have, keep doing that too. <laughs> Man, you're really attacking the conscience here. Yeah, right. Mm. Perfect. Trying to lay down the guilt trip. Sure are. So anyway, uh, that's what's going on with me. What's up with you, Ken? Yeah, so we are evaluating and likely pursuing transitioning our church plant. We have a Sunday evening Bible study, transitioning that to a Sunday morning. And that is a massive step, and we are all kinds of excited for that, all the potential and the possibilities that come along with that, but there's a lot to do in between now and then. So working through all of those details. So yeah, it's good stuff. And uh, Lizzie, your bride is how many months along? She is 17 weeks pregnant. Okay. So five and a half months. Yeah. We count, yeah, we count it by weeks, not by months. So when people ask me the months question, it's like, yeah, 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 yeah. what? We haven't <laughs> had a baby in, my wife and I haven't had a baby in three and a half years, so I've forgotten already that it's weeks, not months, man. Yeah. Okay, well, good. Uh, exciting times. Let's start talking about the conscience. The Bible talks about the conscience, and you have one. So let's see if we can figure this out um, by just starting with some basic definitions and then jumping into what the Bible has to say about it. So, Ken, how do we go about defining this amazing thing, the conscience? Yeah, so the the word conscience itself, the English word, can be broken into these two parts, con and science. Con means with, and science means knowledge. And it's actually pretty amazing that if you go back to the Greek, the original language, it's constructed in the same way. Uh, the, for the first part of the word means with, the second part of the word means knowledge, with knowledge. And this, we define this as the inner God-given innate sense of right and wrong. This is how you internally know why, you're, why, you're, why you ever feel guilty about any action whatsoever. It's because of your conscience. It's, it's the knowledge that God has placed within us of right and wrong. Uh, a couple of texts that we could look at, um, both are in the book of Romans. Uh, so let's, I just should have had this pulled up ahead I of time. It. You got it. Go ahead. Yeah, Romans 2 talks about uh, the Gentiles who don't have the law. It says, Gentiles who do not have the law instinctively do the things of the law, and not having the law, they are a law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them, which is pretty interesting. The Gentiles have a conscience, and it's accusing or assuring them. And in Romans 1, so that was Romans 2, in Romans 1, it kind of gives a uh, little bit of background on that, just a real brief statement. 
where it talks about God has made his existence evident within all people. He has made it evident within them, it says, which is amazing. God has, God has made himself known in them. And uh, we have to recognize all human beings, Jew, Gentile, saved, unsaved, they have a conscience because they're made in the image of God. And there's something spiritual going on there where God is witnessing to the human soul as they are bearing his image. Pretty, pretty amazing. Yeah, it is. And this is where, and again, all human beings have this, right? This is how we are created with, with this inner knowledge, this, the, with knowledge, the inner God-given innate sense of right and wrong. Now, we want to make a, a, an important note with that. This is the innate sense of right and wrong. So our conscience does not determine what is objectively right or wrong. Right? We get that from the Word of God. God's Word reveals to us what is right and wrong. But it's our sense of what is right and wrong. Hmm. And that's, we want to make that important distinction. Yeah, kind of like um, sense of smell. Right. And especially in these COVID days, there are people with varying degrees of uh, yeah. how they can smell. Uh, and I, I would say there's no human being that naturally smells or tastes or whatever with 100 percent accuracy. Um, and in COVID, wow, it's amazing how COVID has just changed all of our thinking <laughs> on this. Right. That people who have it, they completely lose taste and smell. And that's a very strange experience. And then as they start to recover, a lot of people are saying, I, I feel like it's not all the way back or I, this used to smell good and now it smells bad. This used to taste good. And now it kind of tastes weird. Um, or now I, I can eat everything now. I don't really, I'm not as picky as I used to be. It's just interesting how all that works. But the conscience is a sense like that. And it's something that is God given to everybody. Um, but it, like you said, it's not the arbiter. Right, it's not the arbiter of yes. what's right and wrong. It's mm-hmm. a, a re- it's rece- receiving thing. It's a rece- re- blah, 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 re- receptive thing. I don't know why I couldn't say that word. <laughs> um, it's not a, an authority, right? And that is critical because there are you know many people in our culture. Our culture just screams, "Do whatever feels right to you." It's like, well, what if our sense of what is right is skewed? And that's where we're gonna yeah. we're gonna see that today about how. You know, when uh, when we're talking about unbelievers, that conscience is it is not operating in a biblical function. It's still there and it's still operating, and it's great when we are witnessing to people that we appeal to the conscience because it is that inner sense of right and wrong. But it it's not going to be functioning fully as it ought to be because of rebellion and and those sorts of things. So so, so let's talk about unbelievers in First Timothy four. It says, uh, Paul writing to Timothy, that he says, the Spirit explicitly says in later times some will fall away from the faith. And here's how they fall away. It says, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of the hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. And then it lists a couple of the doctrines. They forbid marriage and they advocate abstaining from foods that God has given us to be gratefully shared in. So um, what can we understand about the conscience in terms of the unbelievers who are seared in their conscience? What, what does that mean? 
Yeah. So I think a lot of times when people first hear, you know, I th- I've heard this in Christian circles so much about we got to be careful we're not searing our consciences. But the biblical text here, it's it's actually talking about unbelievers. That word seared is a fascinating word. It's, it's actually only used here in the New Testament, but it refers to being branded with a red hot iron. Um, and so there's like, you just imagine, you know, cows where you're just kind of, and I don't think they're branded, right? That's, <laughs> mm-hmm. So the skin is, uh, is, is kind of rendered numb in that location. It burns and sears the, the nerves that are there. And so where that has happened, I don't know if any of you have ever experienced a severe burn anywhere on your body, but it leaves a scar and that scar isn't sensitive to touch anymore. It's it's numb in that location. And so that's the idea is that there's just this searing that has occurred as if with a branding iron and it marks them. And there's so there's an indication of what's going on there, but it's it also numbs them to feeling the guilt that they ought to feel when they are engaging in things that are contrary to the word of God. Yeah, something that I, I always think of when I hear the word sear is I think of cooking. Uh, yeah. So the reverse sear, I don't know if you're you're in on that method, the reverse <laughs> sear method where you bake the steak first and then bring it out and sear it instead of searing first and then putting it in. Uh, you know, the, the idea of searing is to seal mm-hmm. the, the piece of meat or whatever so things can't penetrate. Uh, and in this case, leak out. You know, you want to sear it and then bake it so that way the juices don't leak out. You trap the juices in. And so there's a barrier that's there. But as we're doing the word study for this, one of the things that we learned too is how the mark of ownership aspect Mm -hmm. is, is really big in all of this. So yeah, there's probably an aspect of sealing off or making numb to, you know, those types of things, but we can also picture this as sin being the owner and searing the person's conscience and saying, I own this person's conscience. Mm -hmm. It goes hand in hand with Romans one, someone being handed over to their sin by God as he demonstrates his wrath in the present. They're handed over to their sin, fully given over. They're owned by it. And there is no sensitivity to that, which is good. It's the lifting of God's hand of common grace on a person. And that person is now owned by sin. Uh, which is a frightening place to be. Yeah, very scary place to be. So, so yeah, the these men who come along, they fall away from the faith with these seared consciences, teaching doctrines of demons. What what a crazy crazy thing! And then in Titus, another young pastor that Paul wrote to, he said, "To the pure, all things are pure." This is Titus chapter one. But to those who are defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure but both their mind and their conscience are defiled. Defiled. So that's a different word than seared. Uh, it has a different connotation to it. Uh, what can we learn about a defiled conscience, or what can we understand about a defiled conscience? Yeah, defiled, it, it's a pretty simple term. It means to, to be soiled, to be made dirty. Uh, and so it's it's like you think of a garment that's been soil has been it's dirty it's it's not clean uh that's that's kind of the idea with that there it is not pure so and that's the contrast that Titus even makes within that old, that uh, that passage nothing is pure their mind their conscience are defiled they're dirty yeah so, so the conscience is classified as tarnished it's it's categorically yeah. tarnished right it's um and we have to recognize, I mean, in conjunction with Romans 1, there there are like levels to this, wouldn't you say? I mean, it, 
we're not saying that people are born neutral and then they kind of like they take steps towards good and they take steps towards bad and you know something like that everybody is born in sin with a sin nature we all mm-hmm. we're all born guilty and we're all born defiled in a sense i mean we're dead we're enemies of god we're uh, rebels children of wrath is what ephesians 2 says so how can we maybe articulate this idea of getting the conscience to a point where it is seared or defiled or being handed over to our sin if we are already children of wrath. Yeah, I mean, so much of it is, you know, when you're, if we're going to use the same, this, this analogy of, of defilements and, and a garment that's been dirty, um, we're, you could say we're born with dirty garments, yeah. <laughs> right? We, yes. we, that's, that's exactly how we come into the world with dirty garments. We are born with a need for the gospel. Absolutely. But there are also a very real reality that some people roll in the mud thicker than others hmm. to use to, to try to continue with the with the soiled garment hmm. uh, imagery and and so that I think there's there are degrees of defilement that that are exist uh, some of that may be restrained by God's grace in some areas um, but there is there are degrees to that and, and even within the Christian's life as we're going to see a little bit later on about how the Christian conscience can be, defiled as well, and it's the same word that's used in that context. So there certainly are different degrees and different implications of what that defilement means. Uh, but even just continuing on with the, uh, with in that same passage from Titus, after he says both their mind and their conscience are defiled, he gives a little description of what that can look like. They profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him, being detestable and disobedient and worthless for any good deed. And that is really strong language. Detestable, disobedient, and worthless for any good deed. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, what you were saying there in your explanation about God's grace restraining, Mm -hmm. uh, we we certainly see that. And you take someone like uh, Ben Shapiro, for example, Hmm. Uh, Ben Shapiro is somebody a lot of us would agree with on a lot of things. He's a politically conservative, sharp-thinking Jew. And in that realm, there's so much we'd agree with. But also in that realm, there's so much we disagree with, right? How is it that he can be such a clear, reasonable voice in the culture when right now there are so many unreasonable voices I mean, people who are just saying insane things, and yet we're saying both Ben Shapiro and like a really insane person. I don't know. Think of somebody in your head politically or on the radio or whoever. And but they're both unsaved. Yet one of them seems so much closer to the kingdom, right? <laughs> uh, yeah. Especially being Jewish, <laughs> and so uh, y- y- there is an aspect in which God's grace restrains people from being the worst that they, as bad as they could be. Right. And, and and for some of those people, he's slowly removing his hand of grace and giving them over to their sin. Yeah, right. I was going to say, yeah, that's, and that's, that's the language we find in Romans chapter one about how uh, you know, people that are, that just continue to persist in the rebellion against God. Uh, to, we, if we were to read through the whole of chapter one of Romans, it just, to me, it just feels like just one blow after another, boom, boom, boom. And then towards the end, it says, therefore, God gave them over. 
in the yeah. lusts of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Yeah, I mean, so you take Ben Shapiro and stand him next to drag queen story hour person <laughs> uh, who's been reading to children at the library advocating for transgenderism, we can clearly say one of those person's consciences is more defiled than the other. Yes. So that I think that is... That, that's probably a healthy picture of what we're trying to say mm-hmm. uh, in this conversation. And I believe what the Bible is teaching too, that there are those whose consciences are more defiled, who are worse than others. And a lot of it has to do with God's common grace when we're talking in the realm of unbelievers. Yeah. Cause I mean, you look at just to continue with that analogy between what you know, Ben Shapiro and drag queen story hour, the, the statements of, of God's, judgment upon individuals there's judgment against all who persist in rebellion against god to everyone but the levels certainly are god speaks much more harshly to to some things than others isaiah chapter 5 verse 20 says woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness and while certainly we would say that there's there's elements of that I'm sure that exist within you know, Ben Shapiro's life, yeah. where where there are things oh, yeah. that that he affirms as good, but we would say no, that's that's not right, and vice versa. But then you compare that against some of these other sins that exist, where people right now our culture is championing, 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 championing. <laughs> Uh, championing, <laughs> okay, I'm not even going to use that word. They are celebrating evil. Yeah. They are celebrating things that are wrong and saying, no, this is good. We are affirming this. We want to we want to affirm whatever, fill in the blank that our culture is celebrating right now. And it is evil. And God says, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when you consider Jesus's interaction with the scribe in Mark 12, um, (laughs) there's this scribe after Jesus gives the greatest commandment, love the Lord, your God. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. A scribe said to him, right teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there's no one else besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. So he he went a little further and and made Mm -hmm. a theological connection. And when Jesus saw that he had answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. Uh, But Jesus is saying he wasn't in the kingdom of God, but he wasn't far from it. So there are levels to lostness, right? Mm. And not saying one will get you in the kingdom, the other won't. Both are headed for hell. Both need the gospel. Amen. But there are levels of depravity, it seems. And uh, I used to mock that idea in my former days. But before we get too far afield, let's uh, talk about hardness of heart, because that goes into that too. So let's touch on that briefly. What does hardness of heart mean? Yeah, so we see this phrase, the uh, hardness or heart hardened, uh, in a couple of different places. But one that really seems to come to mind to me is Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 through 19. It says this So this I say and affirm together with the Lord that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. 
So Paul is, is, is appealing to the Ephesians, don't live like the Gentiles live. And then he gives a description of what that looks like there. It says, verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And they, having become callous, are given themselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. And so he, he highlights the, the ignorance of their own heart, the, and, and it's because of the hardness of the heart. And notice that the connection there, they are ignorant because of the hardness of their heart. They have closed their heart off to the truth. They've become callous. Mm. Uh, <laughs> very, very close concept to a seared conscience. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like two, both words, hard heart, seared conscience, they're both just interchangeable. You could say yeah. seared heart or hardened conscience. Uh, yeah, same idea. Yeah, it's like, well, it, you know, um, I don't know, to use an illustration for that concept of callus, you know, I play guitar, you play often enough, you build up these calluses on your fingertips. Mm-hmm. Well, those calluses, you know, without the calluses, when you play guitar, it hurts your fingers. You can feel yeah. the pain there. You can mm-hmm. feel everything. Once those calluses build up, the pain isn't there. You, you can do the actions without feeling anything. Yeah. And with the hard-heartedness that we see from certain individuals in Scripture or from groups in Scripture, we do get the same idea of God handing them over. I think mm-hmm. most most clearly, most memorable is with Pharaoh. Romans 9 talks about this, but of course the narrative in Exodus itself talks about how Pharaoh hardens his heart and God gives him a hardened heart. There's a... Uh, 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 synergism <laughs> going on with this, <laughs> where um, both both are choosing hardened heart for Pharaoh, both Pharaoh himself and God, and they are given over as they continue to rebel against yeah. God. So um, that is the realm of unbelievers, but let's talk about uh, in the realm of believers. But before we get to that, let me tell you about something that's really special to me, the Bible. There are 66 books in the Bible, 39 in the Old Testament, 27 in the New Testament, and this is the story that God wants us to hear. This is God's revelation to man. This is our axiom for all things to know in life. And the Bible says of itself that it is all that we need for life and godliness because God has supplied it for us. That's from 1 Peter chapter 1, by the way. Second Peter. So, Second Peter chapter 1, by the way. So we have the Bible given to us from God to man. It's God-breathed. It's theonistos. It's what we need to know to live a life pleasing to Him. You can get a copy today, usually for free, anywhere you can find a church or a bookstore. Just let them know you want the Bible. Or you could download an app on your phone. Or you could visit a website and read it for yourself. The Bible, it's the best book there's ever been. You should check it out for yourself check out the Bible today. Now, back to the program. (laughs) uh, Man, I wish I wouldn't have messed up the reference. I was doing my Ben Shapiro impression. We brought him up, and I was doing my impression of him giving the ad. Uh, Okay, we'll we'll work on it. Maybe next time it'll be a better, sharper one. We'll see. It's good. We want to inject some good news into this conversation for a minute. We've been talking about how awful it is outside of Christ, our consciences are seared. Many are in danger of, of being given over to their own sinfulness, their own lust of the flesh, hardness of heart, consciences and minds defiled. But there is good news. 
there's the good news through the gospel of Christ that we see. And, and we're going to read some passages from the book of Hebrews. Because people have tried in different ways to, to figure out, okay, how, okay, there's this, there's this conscience, and we know we are guilty when we defile the conscience. That's, that's the guilt that we feel. Well, how do we make that clean again? How do we go from defiled to being clean? How do we get this guilt removed from us? And people have tried different things, and for, for many people gave their hope in the sacrificial system of the law. But the book of Hebrews makes it clear for us that that was not sufficient. And I'm just going to read Hebrews chapter 9, beginning in verse 9. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience, since they relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until a time of reformation. And, and so that's, that's the Old Testament law. It is incapable of cleansing us and making us clean. But in then our there's conscience. In our conscience, yes. But then we have verse 11 of, chap, of Hebrews 9. But when Christ appeared... As a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is to say, not of this creation, and not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh— how much more will the blood of Christ, through the eternal Spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Yeah, that is the good news, the good hope of the gospel, that our consciences can be cleansed once for all, not just at a moment and then uh, we go make them all defiled again and we're back in our sins. But from God's perspective, uh, we are totally pure forever. Nothing can condemn us ever again. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, there are aspects in our sanctification where we do have to steward our conscience, but from a judicial standpoint, there's nothing that can condemn our conscience ever again if we are in Christ, and that is good news. Amen. And it's—I uh, was about to go off on a rabbit trail. I'm not going to. Yeah, good for you. <laughs> Maturity. Yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in, in Hebrews 10 uh, also, so that was Hebrews 9 that Ken just read, and in Hebrews 10 the same idea uh, is spoken here where we're called to draw near with a sincere heart, with full assurance of faith, because our hearts— have been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. So now there's assurance, assurance mm-hmm. of faith. We have a clear conscience. What a what a good hope. Amen. So one more you get transition. saved. Yeah, you get saved. Conscience clean, once for all, uh, judicially innocent forever. All right. So. Then we just coast into heaven, right? (laughs) Then then we just live this life feeling great, and our consciences are just fine all the time, right? (laughs) Well, it's a little more complicated than that. Yes. uh, Let's talk about sanctification. Now, 
as I'm assuming the vast majority of people listening are Christians who have had their consciences made clean, but perhaps there's been a struggle in sanctification and wrestling mm. with matters of conscience. So uh, how do we want to start getting our minds around this? Well, yeah, for just real quick, if anybody's listening, they don't have a clear understanding of what the word sanctification means. It just refers to our growth in holiness and becoming more and more like Christ, being transformed into his image. This this takes place progressively over time. This is not an instantaneous thing. This is, uh, it's, it is distinct from justification, where justification is a judicial act on God's part. And then from there, sanctification is that process through which God works in our hearts, works in our lives, and we progressively become more like Christ over time as we mature in the faith. So that's what sanctification is. But I really like the phrase that, uh, that you used, Jeremy, just a little bit ago about how once we are saved, we still have the responsibility to steward our conscience. I think that's a really good a good phrase to steward the conscience because it's very important to have to maintain a good and clean conscience before God. And a lot of that is for the sake of our testimony. Listen to what uh, Peter wrote in 1 Peter chapter 3 and this is this is really the the whole quintessential passage on apologetics, right? About dealing with unbelievers and and giving a defense for the faith. What he's dealing with uh, this is in the context of Christian suffering. And Peter writes but even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And do not fear their intimidation, and, and do not be troubled. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts, always being ready to make a defense to everyone who asks to give you an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. And, continuing on with the same thought, keep a good conscience, he says, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. And so Peter is, is calling us to keep a good conscience before the Lord for the sake of our public testimony. When, when accusations and slander is brought against us, all those that are looking around at the accusations will say, uh, actually, that, that guy's a good guy. Like, uh, it's, it's very clear that this man is living an upright life. And so we are called to steward our conscience in that way, to keep a clear conscience before God for that purpose. Yes, a clear conscience. There is hardly a greater feeling in the world than a clear conscience. Mm -hmm. I lived a lot of my life not having a clear conscience. Um, before I was a believer, especially, uh, you know, running around and you, you might tell a lie here or there and then have to cover it up with this person over there, uh, do this thing you shouldn't have done and hide it from that person, you know, all of that stuff. Uh, and it just plagues you. A, a, a conscience that is not clear really does plague you. But we're told as Christians to keep a good conscience. And there are two ways to really think about this, since this is in the context of dealing with outsiders. One is to, of course, do the right thing. So as you live your life, choose to honor God with the things that you are doing, uh, meaning don't sin against other people, <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, just choose righteousness over sin. But obviously, we're not going to be perfect in that. That should be our goal, to walk in a manner worthy of our calling. But when you mess up the other way, when you sin, to make it right. Yes. So that way, those around you in your life, they're not going to say, oh, Oh, he would never do that. He's perfect, right? I mean, that that no one could say that of anybody, but they could at least say of you, he's a good man. He or she or whatever is is a good person because of this, that, or the other thing. And 
they've always sought to make things right with me. <laughs> you yes. know, mm. an, an unbeliever made in the image of God who also has a conscience can understand that when you go the extra mile to make those things right and to do the right thing before them. Um, it, it really is an amazing thing. I'll tell just a really brief story on that. When I was younger, we lived next to a church. We moved there when I was four and I got saved at that church when I was 16. But uh, for the longest time, uh, I, I didn't attend any services there over 10 years. And I knew the pastor's son. He was just a year older than me. And me and my friend in our neighborhood were out riding bikes one day and came across the pastor's son and his friend. So they were both a year older than us. And they were, you know, kids being kids. So we probably, we, we definitely weren't being perfect, but these kids were trying to intimidate us a little bit and were being jerks to us. One of the kids pulled his pocket knife out and that kind of scared me as a kid. Like, I don't know him that well, but I don't know. He just pulled a pocket knife out, like, and gestured with it, you know? And, uh, anyway, the (laughs) pastor that ended up leading me to the Lord and baptizing me and all that stuff, he, uh, he brought over his son to my house, having heard of the incident and wanted to talk to my dad and me and to make sure things were right. Hmm. Now he didn't have to do that, right? He, he could have been like, ah, kids are kids. He didn't have to go through those steps. But having done that, my dad respected him more because of that. And my dad was an unbeliever and I was an unbeliever. But there was a respect there for him for having done that. And I think it fits right in with this idea in First Peter 3, um, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ will be put to shame. That was good behavior in Christ that mm-hmm. he was doing. And... Uh, his conscience was clear having done what he needed to do. So as Christians, we are to go those extra steps to keep a good conscience. Yeah, that's good. That's good. There's uh, one more passage that uh, we're going to read. There's a lot of passages that speak to the conscience. We're not getting to all of them, but there's one more that's... That yeah, we we want to just read verse 5, huh? Yeah, probably so. Yeah, from, from 1 Timothy chapter 1, it says, The goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart, and a good conscience and a sincere faith. As Paul's writing to Timothy, and he's he's giving him instruction about how you need to lead the church. He says the goal of our instruction, the goal as the from the leadership of the church as they're teaching the people, the goal is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. That's the goal of what we want to see produced in the hearts of, of, of the people of our churches and, and what we should be striving for as believers. Good. So uh, as we go about living this Christian life, seeking to keep a good conscience, uh, our consciences bump up against other people's consciences, <laughs> and not all Christian consciences are the same. And this is something you've certainly heard on the podcast before, if you've been listening for any amount of time. We have different opinions on things, and that's okay. We have varying levels of tolerance for certain issues, and that's okay. And so that really complicates the issue. Yeah. Before we get into that specifically, we want to make a distinction. There, This is not meaning that all of morality is subjective. Again, we clarified this at the beginning of the show, but just want to reiterate it here. There, there is objective truth in God's Word, and we would put these things in the primary column on our chart— 
it's it's very clear the what biblical morality is biblical ethics those things are true they do not change for anyone so whether or not your conscience says that something is right or wrong in relation to something in that primary column well it doesn't matter you need to you need to submit your conscience to the clear teachings of the word of god when we start talking about how our consciences start bumping into each other and there's disagreements now we're down into this third column these things of conscience where where things are the Bible doesn't speak clearly and directly to these issues. And well, the Bible just calls them opinions. They're, right. They're yeah. left up to us. Exactly. <laughs> Romans chapter um, 14. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting. In Romans 14, uh, in the NASB, the title of the section says matters of conscience, but the word conscience doesn't come up at all <laughs> in the chapter, which I found interesting. It just talks about opinions and how we handle opinions and conscience is assumed in that conversation. Mm. But uh, so you could check out Romans 14 to get some more insight on that, but we want to focus on 1 Corinthians 8. And the interesting language that's in 1 Corinthians 8 about a wounded conscience. Now, so we're talking squarely about believers uh, mingling with one another, <laughs> seeking to in- live the Christian life together. Now you've got these opinions that don't always line up, and we need to consider one another's consciences in how we go about exercising our opinions, because we can either build up someone's conscience and protect that person's conscience, which should be a goal, because we don't only steward our consciences, we need, need to steward the consciences of our brothers and sisters in Christ, and so protecting their consciences instead of wounding them, and that's the language that we find in 1 Corinthians 8. So, Let's jump into that and consider this from all angles. Yeah. Do we want to read the, the full passage is quite a bit. It um, is. It, it, we just get the context. Up? Yeah, the context. Uh, there's different individuals in the church that are wrestling with this issue of, of food sacrificed to idols. For some individuals, they're approaching it and saying, well, it's a fake idol. Why would I care if this food was sacrificed to a fake idol? That idol's not real. I'm going to eat the meat. And there's other people that are saying, Oh no, like I can't eat that. It was sacrificed mm-hmm. to an idol. I would be participating in the worship of that false idol by eating that meat. Yeah, I'm joining myself to idol worship through right. this burger. Right, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so Paul is trying to reason with them and say, okay, you know, it, we know that there is only one God and we know that there is no there is no idol, there's no false god in reality. There is only one God. However, he says, and we'll pick it up in verse 7, however, not all men have this knowledge, but some, being accustomed to the idol until now, eat food as if it were sacrificed to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Hmm. That's where there's that same defiled language that we read about earlier referring to unbelievers. So let's let's just pause for a moment. He throws in being weak. He didn't have mm-hmm. to say that. He could have said their conscience is defiled. <laughs> right. But he said their conscience being weak mm-hmm. is defiled. Uh, and this is the type of language we get in Romans 14 also, the yep. weaker brother and the stronger brother. Um, how should we consider weak con- consciences versus strong consciences? Uh, because we are talking about two Christians after all, right? We're not talking about Christians versus non-Christians, but we're talking about the weak and the strong are both Christians. So what's the what's the difference there? I would say that a our conscience is strengthened with biblical truth. 
A conscience is strengthened with biblical truth. That's what he says there in verse 7. Not all men have this knowledge. And so it is the lack of the knowledge that leads to their conscience being weak. They, they are still associating the meat with the idol. And Paul mm. says, no, it's actually, there, there is no such thing as the idol. It doesn't exist. It's, there is only one God. And so the, the issue is, are we allowing our consciences to be informed and strengthened by biblical truth? Yeah, good. Yeah, it's a mark of maturity, yes. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and maturity just takes time. Yeah. <laughs> One of the quotes, I've got a bulletin board with a lot of quotes and stuff up here, but I've got time plus effort equals experience. And that's something I've talked to guys about uh, with leadership. Time plus effort equals experience. And then I followed up with, you can only... You can only uh, influence one of those items. It's the effort part. Time just takes mm. time. That, that's a that's an old Binfold song. Time takes time, <laughs> and so it's not putting down the weak brother here and saying that person just needs to get his act together. Right. It just takes time for someone to learn and for that conscience to develop. So it's not a a qualitative statement necessarily. There is a a quality aspect to it, but it it just is what it is. It just takes time for people to grow in their knowledge and to understand the liberty they have in Christ. And if we start looking down on people for the perceived weakness, we violate the commands of Romans 14, where Paul explicitly says, the one who eats should not look down on the one who does not, and the one who does not Mm -hmm. should not look down on the one who does. And so we want to maintain that, okay, we, we, we have this negative connotation of the word weak, but we need to make sure that we're not approaching that from a position of pride within arrogance within our own hearts that causes us to look down our noses towards those who we perceive as being the weaker brother. Yes. So good. Well, let's get into the the rest of the passage there and there's more to say. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. You want to take it from nine, I guess. Yeah. Verse nine. It says, uh, but, but take care that this liberty of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So, well, even in verse 8, it says that, okay, we're not the worse if we do eat, or we're not the better if we don't eat, etc. But we, don't, we want to make sure we're not abusing this liberty that doesn't make us become a stumbling block to the weak. And he gives an example of what that looks like. For, verse 10, if someone sees you who has knowledge dining in an idol's temple, will not his conscience, if he is weak, be strengthened to eat things sacrificed to idols. So he's going to see you sitting there, you're eating the meat, and he's just, oh, oh, well, he's doing that. I guess I can do that too. But his conscience is still weak. And so even though his conscience is telling him, oh, I should not eat that, oh, he's, he's, he's emboldened to pursue that activity by viewing your behavior. And so, verse 11, and this, this is where... This is where things get get scary for for us Christians when we're considering how our actions influence others. Verse eleven. Oh, go ahead. Let me throw in a cross reference real quick. It's back to Romans fourteen. Paul's having this conversation about the weaker brother, stronger brother, and this isn't about meat offered to idols. This is about vegetarianism, basically. Can you eat meat at all, or mm-hmm. can you? Should you eat only vegetables? Well, Paul concludes that whole thing, that whole scenario, with the thought. He who doubts is condemned if he eats. Yes. So he who doubts that he can eat meat, he's condemned if he goes ahead and can and he eats that meat because he's not eating from faith. <laughs> and whatever is not from faith is sin. Yes. So that's the same idea here is that 
It's basically peer pressuring the person into going against his own conscience. And you might say, but what's wrong with that? Because he's free in Christ to do so. Is he free in Christ to do so? I mean, you could say as a general principle, people are free in Christ to do so, but that specific individual is not free in Christ because his conscience has not been freed by the Holy Spirit. He's still bound in his conscience, and he cannot do so in good faith, which means he's sinning when right. he joins along. So that's that's a very complex thing to think through, but we so often neglect thinking through it. Yeah. Uh, we, we have to think through it. We have to face that. Yeah. Especially because that, uh, that conscience isn't static in these areas. Our consciences yeah. can grow and evolve. Like I said, our, we can be, our, our conscience can be strengthened with biblical truth to where, okay, I, I felt like I couldn't eat this meat before, but now having been informed of biblical truth, I, I actually feel like I think I can, and it won't violate my conscience anymore. Yeah. So that kind of change occurs, and I would even say we're free in Christ to offer uh, loving challenges to people to yeah. consider things biblically, but we have to be careful that that loving challenge doesn't cross the line and become unloving peer pressure, trying to goad someone into doing something they ought not to do. And and that's the scenario in First Corinthians eight is that. Yeah. This person has now been brought in to eat meat sacrificed to idols, though that person's conscience says, don't do that. And so I'll just pick up at verse 11, and I'll read now. You've been reading all these Bible passages. Uh, Verse 11, for through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined, the brother for whose sake Christ died. And so by sinning against the brethren and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food causes my brother to stumble, I will never eat meat again so that I will not cause my brother to stumble. Wow. Yeah. This, so this is now saying not only is that person sinning by joining in and eating the meat when the conscience says, don't do that, but you, by being the agent of pro- provocation, you're provoking that person to do it, you sin against Christ. Yeah. A couple of words in there that are really quite striking. Through your knowledge, he who is weak is ruined. That word ruined is a strong word, speaks of being destroyed. And that's, it's kind of, it it almost seems like almost too harsh of language for Mm. the context in some ways. But we're when we speak of wounding their conscience, that weaker brother is, is ruined, they're destroyed, they are undone. This is this is a serious, serious thing. This is a high-stakes game we're playing when we start trying to push someone into doing something that they don't feel comfortable doing. We yeah. run the risk of of ruining them, of, of destroying them in their conscience. Yes, it says that we wound them in their conscience. That's the same word for beating. It's uh, in the Gospels where Jesus was crucified when he was beaten, or in the book of Acts when Paul was... Uh, persecuted as a Christian, uh, he was beaten. It's the same word. Mm. We're beating up their conscience. We're slapping their conscience in what we're doing. Yikes. Yeah. And of course, this is, again, sin. Like, this isn't just, oh, well, I, I shouldn't have done that. It's no big deal. No, this is sin to lead others into this kind of stumbling. So yeah. we need to be careful not to offend others that way. So now we've kind of done a Bible study here. Let's wrap it up with some Bible study application questions. <laughs> the end of the chapter questions for our Bible study. Um, I think some of these will be quick and some won't be. So let's, let's see how, 
how we can work through these. Considering the what we just looked at, uh, for unbelievers, for unbelievers who come to Christ through salvation uh, in the gospel, for believers who are now growing in Christ, do we say that believers themselves can have a seared conscience? What, you you kind of you, you hinted, you showed your hand a little bit. I did. At the beginning. I did. Uh, but you want to elaborate on that now? Yeah. So it, it's a common phrase that we hear, right? About uh, we want to make sure we're not searing our consciences and, and things like that. At, I've heard just in the context of, of church conversations that this sort of thing comes up. But having examined the biblical texts, I think we would have to say, no, believers cannot have their consciences seared, at least not in the same way that unbelievers yeah. are. Because again, mm-hmm. with the concept of searing, not only refers to the the numbness and the the unfeelingness of the guilt, but it also reflects an idea of ownership. And yeah. we do not belong to we do not belong to sin. Right? We do not belong to the devil. Those who are in Christ are free from sin. We are free from from that, and so we are set free in Christ. There is therefore no condemnation to those who are in Christ. And so that's that's a, an important distinction that we do not belong to sin. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we have been set free. Those passages in Hebrews, we are cleansed. The conscience has been cleansed. We are unseared, so to speak, when we are joined to Christ in faith. So even though a Christian cannot have a seared conscience, it's evident that a Christian can have a wounded conscience. Yes. And to know if you have a wounded conscience, it's basically, am I doing something that's not of faith? Uh, I just had a conversation earlier today with a brother of mine, a, a Christian brother. I'm an only child, no physical brother, sadly. But uh, I know that there's one, there's a certain thing that he can't do out of faith. <laughs> and uh, he was engaging in an activity that I thought, ah, oh, is he doing? Is he doing this thing that he's told me before that he shouldn't do? <laughs> and it's not a matter of sin. It's just one of those things that his conscience has been bound on. Then it is a matter and, of sin. He, well, yes, there you go. So it's not objective sin, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, so it's not a matter of objective sin for all people, but for him, he couldn't do it in good faith. And so I said, you know, this activity that he was doing, I said, are you doing that out of faith? And he said, oh yeah, I can do this thing. I'm cool with this thing. It's just, and then he clarified and said, these these types of activity. Hmm. I can't. And so um, if you go forward, though, and do something that your conscience is saying don't do, you're wounding yourself. And if you are are pulling people into an activity that they can't do out of good faith, you're wounding them. You're sinning against Christ. So um, we we can manage our, our consciences in this way by avoiding activities that wound our conscience. Yes. Very good. Um... Would you say that there is, now this is where we, we uh, <laughs> there's lots of different splintering directions that we could go with with some of the outflow from this. Though we cannot have a, a seared conscience in the same way that, that an unbeliever can have a seared conscience, we still wrestle with, there, there are ways that we can, I don't know what the right word is that is not that doesn't become numb to. Yeah, which again we're we're kind of that's almost similar to, analogous to the searing because the with a part of the searing is the numbness, but can we desensitize our conscience despite having faith in Christ and and receiving the Holy Spirit and things like that? 
So, yeah, there is a difference between a free conscience and foolishness. I I think Mm. that's where this, the, the answer lies. So there are people that truly have a free conscience in a lot of areas. And for some people that have maybe a more restrictive conscience, they'll look at that person and say, He's just numb to sin. He's numb to the dangers of this activity or that activity. Uh, you can imagine people who were refraining from eating meat offered to idols, looking at the people, just enjoying it and saying, "Ah, oh, look at them! Look at them over there! Uh, <laughs> they they just don't even know the danger of this." When they do know the danger. And in fact, perhaps they were mature enough to say, if I would have known you would have saw me, I would have put it away for the sake of your conscience, you know? Uh, but this kind of thing goes on in Christian circles. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's all kinds of things we could put into this category. So, um, so yeah, it, it's very interesting, but there is a difference between someone who has a freed conscience and someone who's just being foolish and where that line is can be very difficult to discern. Uh, a person who's who's just doing foolish things and saying, well, I'm free in Christ. I'm free in Christ. And they've never even thought through the thing they're doing. That, right. And that's really the big difference is, have you thought through this? Because if you've thought through it, you've prayed about it, you've gotten some counsel on it, you've done a Bible study on it, if, if the Bible speaks to that issue and you still feel okay with it, that's one thing. But if you're just going about your life thinking, I don't need to think about this, well, Read what Proverbs has to say about the fool, because yeah. that might be you at that point. And being foolish is uh, a, a big problem. That's not not the way to live your life. You're not being a good steward. Yes, Amen. So there's a you you said there's a difference between a, a free conscience and foolishness. We could also say that there's a a difference between a hardened heart and a blind spot. Yeah, and right. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah. So let's think of in Corinth, the, you know, he's writing to the Corinthians about meat offered to idols. Well, in Corinth, uh, they were engaged in all sorts of activities before coming to Christ, like going to temple prostitutes. He talks about that in first Corinthians six, just two chapters before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard for us to imagine, but for them, Stopping that activity could have totally been a blind spot for them. I mean, what kind of sexual knowledge did they have before they got saved? I mean, it was just a free for all in Corinth, but for them, it was just like, oh, this is a thing you do. I mean, they didn't have a full Bible given to them when they came to know the Lord. They needed so much instruction. It was a brand new worldview. And so is that maybe perhaps, uh, you know, where our minds should go in this? Is this people who just don't have knowledge, that means it's a blind spot? I think so, yeah. When uh, the, the lack of knowledge is what creates the blind spot where, you know, you just never never even considered, it never even entered into your mind that this was an activity that you ought not to be doing. The, the important thing is when we are confronted with biblical truth in the area of those blind spots, we say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry. Yeah. Forgive me, and then we seek to make the change in our lives that reflect the biblical truth. And if we're not, and if we do not do that, that's where we run the risk of, oh no, actually your heart is hardened. If you if you are confronted with biblical mm-hmm. truth in an area that was a blind spot, and you say, I don't care, I'm just going to do it anyway. That's that's a reflective of a hardened heart, and not just a blind spot. Yes, there's a difference between. Willful sin out of a, yeah, out of a hard heart, which may indicate you're not even a believer. Um, 
it, it may indicate something else, but there's di- a difference between that and then just being being a wise person who just didn't know. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, and when I say wise, I mean, this is how Proverbs talks about the wise and the foolish. The wise man is confronted and says, thank you. The wounds of a friend. I love this. Um, thank you for telling me I will change. I, that's what a wise person does. The fool gets told of his sin and says, nah, I don't care or yeah. blame someone else like Adam. So uh, it's a really a, a stewardship issue. Wise stewardship or foolishness. And finally, when we start talking about these differences between these things, there's one more category that would probably be helpful to look at. There's a difference between a sensitive conscience. Okay, I, I, I need to keep reading that sentence. A sensitive conscience from the spirit and irrational self-condemnation. So it, oh, yeah. <laughs> man, it's so hard. It's so hard to draw these lines. It is. But that, that sensitive conscience from the spirit, that's meaning we are our heart is pricked when we are, are violating God's word, word his, his revealed commands for us. We're violating what his word says, and so we feel guilt. And it's right to feel guilt in those areas because we have, we've sinned against God, right? We should mm-hmm. feel guilt there. But then there's also areas where there's irrational self-condemnation, where maybe there's a standard that was erected that is not a biblical standard, and yet we violate that man-made standard and feel guilty about that. Yeah. Well, Mm. boy, this is so tough, because we get the examples in Scripture that we've already mentioned, Romans 14 the vegetarian. Mm-hmm. First Corinthians 8, the person who won't eat that brand of meat because I know where that meat came from. <sighs> Is it rational? In a sense, no. <laughs> In a sense, it's like, oh, no, you are free. Right. That's yeah. irrational. But Paul leaves room for that behavior and says, that's okay for that person. Now, he does indicate that it is weak. Mm-hmm. He does. I mean, it's not like he says it's... Uh, He's not like saying, yeah, that that person should just have that mindset and stay in that mindset forever. But he's labeling it as that person's a legitimate Christian. Don't touch that person's conscience. Protect that that person's conscience because the spirit is the one working on that person. The spirit is the one maturing, growing that person to make that person strong. So um, when we talk about the difference between a sensitive conscience from God's spirit and irrational self-condemnation... We just have to recognize that there's a level of self-incurred guilt that can come upon a person that is not from the Spirit. Mm-hmm. And that self-incurred guilt that is not from God can be defined by a few markers. It can be noticed, I guess, by a few markers. I mean, one is that it, you're just never really released from it. You're pushed into fear. There's never a sense of forgiveness, but you're just pushed into this and you feel trapped by it. God doesn't trap you in fear. That's not what God's love does. God's love forgives, gives you rest. God's love leads you into assurance. God's love doesn't trap you in fear. And so that's a big marker of this. Um, And like you mentioned, extra biblical standards, we, we need to look at that. Now, eating only vegetables, that's an extra biblical standard. But I think what's implied in Romans 14 and in 1 Corinthians 8 by saying the brother is weaker based on knowledge is that 
help take that person to the Bible and help that person grow without pushing that person to do something. Yeah. And so what you need to do, if you're trapped in that fear with that self-incurred guilt out of irrationality is go back to the word of God and hear what God has to say and ask God to grow you, ask God to change you. If your conscience needs to be changed and he will be faithful to do that. Yeah. And it's sometimes this is so difficult because it's not always necessarily self-imposed standards, but it might be standards of a community that you're a part of that just that binds your conscience in such a way that, that, that really should not occur. And, yeah. you know, we see this especially in, in very super conservative fundamentalist circles that it can occur where there's these, these standards that from a variety of, of standpoints that aren't necessarily inherently wrong in themselves but they can create feelings of fear and guilt over things that are really quite trivial. And I, I have to say, there are some clear ways that this can play out where, that we have to address head on, where you can have in your local church, maybe just one person, but let's just say for this example, a very small percentage of the people who go to the church. So this could be three to 10 people or whatever, who say that, you know, we have a sensitive conscience about this one issue and our church shouldn't do it anymore. And to give you a, a trite example, we live out here in Mormon land and Mormons don't drink coffee. Well, say one of those Mormons, one of these Mormon neighbors comes to know the Lord, comes to our church and still feels like coffee's wrong. We've got a coffee bar at, at our in our church building. And what if maybe it's a married couple, it's two of them. They say, we feel like this is wrong. I mean, our consciences don't allow us to do this. This is you know, incurring guilt on us by being around a bunch of people who are doing this. Do we apply Paul's principle of I will never eat meat, meat again if it causes a brother to stumble? Does a church start making decisions based on everybody's individual conscience? That can get strange in a hurry. Yeah. But so we have to work with each other. The weak have to work with the strong just as much as the strong have to work with the weak. Absolutely. When we all come together for the purpose of fellowship, uh, we see it with clothes. I mean, that's probably yep. more common. Um, someone wearing sandals to church and you've got a pocket of people who are offended by that. What well, does that mean? We create dress codes for our local gathering. I don't think so. Uh, but some churches have, right? Some churches have. And so, though. and that's where right. that, that community can begin to erect those standards that all of a sudden, the individual that's stepping in and they are wearing those sandals and now they begin to feel super guilty about something yes. as trivial as wearing sandals, yes. you know? And so that's <laughs> something that's more Christ-like. <laughs> 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 and so we, we, we have these, these are areas that we have to be, be careful of, but we want to think through them biblically and, and have be informed by God's word, knowledge, biblical truth, will strengthen all of our consciences as we begin to explore God's word together. And yes, and in the we just always have to be articulating to those who are the weaker. If we're the stronger, we have to always be articulating, you don't have to do this, you know, yeah. and if uh, you don't we're not trying to pressure you into this activity or whatever it might be. Um, if they have knowledge of our activity that they disagree with. So uh, it Can, takes a lot of grace, takes a lot of humility, takes a lot of patience. One, like everything else in life. Yeah, yeah. I think one really good way too to uh, to help someone work through, you know, it, it, someone they have a sensitive conscience about something that the Bible doesn't erect that kind of standard, and they have this standard. You can just go to them, and one of the ways that you can challenge them lovingly is say, you know, if this is a blind spot in my life, I want to be aware of that. Can you show me from God's word? 
where this should not occur, where this this sort of thing shouldn't be happening, where we should not be consuming caffeine and coffee. Show me from God's word, and then I can be aware of the blind spot, and we can work through that together. That will challenge them to substantiate their, the standard that has been that has come up, substantiate it from God's word and attempt to do that. And maybe through that process, they will learn and they'll grow and say, hey, actually, this isn't in God's word. We actually have freedom in this area. And their consciousness yeah. can then begin to be loosened through studying God's word and gaining that knowledge. Yes. Yeah. And those conversations are so difficult. You just you have to infuse so much grace yes. in that, and and affirmation of the person as your brother or sister. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, and that should be both ways. But uh, boy, those can be real challenging yeah. conversations. But we have to have them. The Christian life yeah. isn't meant to be challenge free. It's full of challenges. And uh, for our good and God's glory. And the one, the one last comment, because I, I think we're we're coming up. The way yeah. <laughs> this has been going for a little bit, but the one last comment that I would have to say, an encouragement to those that that may be struggling with guilt from different areas, and they've they have been burdened by different standards that may or may not be biblical standards. If you have professed that faith in Christ, you have given your heart over to the Lord. There is no condemnation to those who are in Christ. That is, that is the promise of Romans chapter 8. Though we wrestle and we struggle with different things, there is no condemnation in Christ. There is grace and forgiveness for, for everything that we do. And, and we want to live faithfully. We want to steward our conscience well, and we want to approach that biblically and all those things. But at the end of the day, if you are in Christ, there is no condemnation for you. And you need to rest in that, rest in the gospel in that. If you, if you recognize the good news according to the Bible, the biblical gospel, you have believed, don't ever go back on that and yeah. call God a liar. Yes. <laughs> God has said you are saved. And so don't go back on that. Keep looking to Christ. Uh, keep being assured through the words of Christ, not through your own works. Be assured through Christ. And now seek to live life in wisdom. Seek to do your your business with your father's good blessing by honoring him in all that you do according to his word. But don't call into question your justification. You're innocent forever. What good news. Amen. Amen. Well, that's a wrap. (laughs) We did it. (laughs) Uh, I think that was was a good conversation. And uh, look, if if you thought this was a good conversation, please think about dropping us a comment. Uh, giving us a rating or sharing this episode, the audio, the video, we're on YouTube. If you didn't know, you can you can do any of that. So uh, please help us out that way. Right now, I think on iTunes slash Apple Music, we have 19 reviews and they're all five stars. Would you be the first person to give us a four star rating? Could you be the first one to do that today? Uh, you know anything that motivates you to rate. Uh, so uh, th- we thanks could for say listening. you could be the twentieth and round us off to twenty. so thanks thanks for listening and uh, if you want to reach out to us find us on social media at do theology or email us at show at do theology.com and until next time do theology
Y'all ready for this? Y'all ready for this? You ready? Yeah. Okay. That'll 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 make its way onto an end of an episode somewhere. Easter egg.